Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Episode 4. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I answer round one of questions in a two-part series from a recent interview with Chris O'Cull, Consumer and Retail Analyst for Stiefel Financial Corp. First question is, why is restaurant M&A hot? Question number two, which restaurant franchises are in the most demand and why? Three, how do buyers and sellers think about valuation when considering a transaction? And four, what are the biggest obstacles to overcome when completing a franchise-to-franchise transaction? The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on an every other week basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Our first question, why is restaurant M&A hot? Many asset classes have appreciated significantly in the past five to six years. For example, real estate prices are currently high, and the stock market has had an unbelievable run too. If you are reviewing your investment returns over the past few years, you are likely very happy, but you're probably having trouble deciding where to invest now to get a decent yield on your money. Everything seems fully valued. For institutional investors, this same problem exists. Increasing wealth and cheap debt have created huge appreciation in most asset classes, and businesses in real estate don't look as cheap as they used to look. With a ton of cash on hand, these investors begin to ask themselves, where can I find a good return and get some diversification? The answer to this question inevitably leads them in one of two different directions. Number one, acquiring different types of businesses that previously were overlooked. And two, journeying down market to find smaller businesses that are undervalued, can be consolidated, and don't have access to sophisticated capital. As the ball has rolled down market, franchise restaurants have benefited from this trend. When I first started working for Yum Brands Corporate in the early 2000s, there were almost no private equity investors as franchisees, for example. No one even knew what a family office was. Most legacy franchise systems were populated with the original franchisees who were smaller in size and unsophisticated as to their capital structure. And only a few franchisees in each brand were doing larger acquisitions. Imagine the famous painting American Gothic by Grant Wood. You know it. It depicts a farmer with a pitchfork and his daughter. This visual can give you a rough idea of how franchising started for many operators. Fast forward to the 2010 to 2013 timeframe, and the consolidation trend started to pick up. It started mainly by independent operators acquiring smaller franchisees. The mid-sized franchisees started to double in size while there was an occasional large institutional buyer entering the business making big headlines. Smaller operators didn't have a secession plan and no longer wanted to fight tighter profit margins and increase regulations. This initial consolidation was really instrumental to what we are seeing today because institutional investors would never have had the patience to acquire five or four restaurants and grow little by little through smaller acquisitions. But the mid-size operators were happy to do it. 
In recent years, franchise M&A has really snowballed. Professional investors have started following the cycle I mentioned earlier. And all the while, the size of the average franchisee has increased dramatically as mom-and-pop operators were replaced with mid-sized franchisees who eventually became large franchisees. We now see 2 to $10 million in EBITDA as the entrance point for investors in franchise businesses, which is quite a bit lower than what we've ever seen in the past. Again, going down market has created more opportunities for investment. Deal flow is now high. Credit remains relatively cheap. New family offices are looking at deals seemingly every day. And acquiring restaurants has suddenly become a cool thing to do. Our second question is which restaurant franchises are in the most demand and why? The answer to this question is more difficult than you'd expect. Initially, consider the restaurants with the most loyal customer following, most innovative products, highest unit count, biggest unit growth rate, most years of consecutive positive sales comps, and brands with a dominant position among their competitors in a narrow segment of the market, such as burgers, pizza, tacos, and chicken, for example. You'll come up with names such as McDonald's, Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, Taco Bell, Domino's, Panera, and Dunkin'. You probably have others, too. These are a handful of the brands that are the best at what they do. However, their franchise models are very different from one another. McDonald's, for example, controls the real estate under most franchisees' buildings, and it therefore has a heavy hand in who enters and exits its brand. The M&A process here is severely restricted. Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, and Domino's are three other examples. Starbucks doesn't franchise, and Chick-fil-A has a very selective owner-operator model that limits franchisees to only several stores and invests alongside them as a financial partner. This greatly lessens M&A since franchisees don't really have control. Domino's limits a franchisee from becoming actively involved in another business. This effectively cuts out M&A for anyone who isn't raised up in the Domino's system or who isn't an existing franchisee. Adjusting for scenarios like this, you are left with a different set of high demand concepts that are in more of a free market from an investment perspective for a franchisee. These are Taco Bell, Panera, and Dunkin', and they'd be at the high end from a demand perspective. The next tier contains names such as Wendy's, Popeyes, Buffalo Wild Wings, KFC, Pizza Hut, Burger King, and Arby's. Further down the list are larger national brands not already mentioned and some fast casual brands as well. Finally, the lower tier are regional brands with lower unit count, sandwich brands, casual dining brands, and various pizza brands. There is demand here, but typically at lower valuations unless the individual franchisee is special in some way. Our third question is how do buyers and sellers think about valuation when considering a transaction? The restaurant industry has a very particular way to think about valuations, and this is different than what most people learn in business school. The methodology is simple, but like everything in restaurants, it seems, from financing to marketing to operations, it's difficult to execute correctly and easy to mishandle. Restaurant valuations are determined based on several criteria on a trailing 12-month or rolling 13-period basis. They are net sales, real estate owned versus leased, pre-GNA EBITDA, implied or actual G&A expenses, the famously known EBITDA multiple, remodeling dates, and remodeling costs. If the real estate is owned, important factors are implied rent, cap rates, and rent coverage ratios. I know that's a lot. For a simple example, evaluation for a restaurant that is not fee-owned would essentially take pre-G&A EBITDA lessen G&A allocation, then multiply by an EBITDA multiple and finally reduce the result by a discounted value of several years of future remodeling obligations. 
Real estate would be valued at implied rents and prevailing cap rates subject to rent coverage ratios in term of the remaining franchise agreement. From a high level, post-GNA EBITDA multiples generally range from four and a half to eight times, and cap rates are generally between 5.75 to 7.5%. However, it takes much experience to correctly apply these various criteria based on brand, geography, size, performance, tenure of the franchise, operational track record, and other factors. For example, a two-unit Taco Bell business in Montana with no real estate and long-remaining franchises has an entirely different valuation methodology than a 50-unit Pizza Hut business in Atlanta with 20 pieces of real estate and 15 remodels to do in the next three years. The iterations can expand infinitely, it seems. And there are three problems that happen when franchisees throw around valuation metrics with their friends. The first is that most of them have no idea what their true post-GNA EBITDA is. The second is most will misapply an EBITDA multiple or cap rate to their assets. And the third and most universal is that all of them think their business is worth more than it's actually worth. Our fourth question is, what are the biggest obstacles to overcome when completing a franchise-to-franchise transaction? Well, there are several. Financing contingencies, franchisor approval, due diligence, lengthy contract disputes, particularly on indemnification clauses, lease assignments, restaurant facility inspections, environmental phase ones on real estate, sales declines during due diligence, acts of God, and lastly, maybe most importantly, the egos of the buyers and sellers. Financing contingencies haven't been such a big deal recently, I'll note, but several years ago they dominated the uncertainty of deal closings. Franchisor approval, on the other hand, is becoming much, much more difficult, especially as corporate organizations are cutting staff amidst an increase in transactional activity. Also, franchisors are becoming much choosier on who they will approve, and they are much more meddlesome than ever with slapping new unit development obligations on transfers. One item I would point out is that due diligence and asset purchase agreement negotiations are becoming much more difficult than in previous years. Why? Many operators are now backed by investors, and they have a fiduciary responsibility since they aren't spending their own money. In the not-too-distant past, a deal could close almost on a handshake. Nowadays, the buyer could come from Kansas City and an investor behind them could be from New York. It's the opposite of a handshake deal. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. from.